0: As humans, we are masters of self-deception. In our personal lives and in our work, we see what we want to see. Julia Galef calls this a soldier mindset and explains why we defend the ideas we most want to believe and we shoot down those we don't. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Julia Galef about her book, The Scout Mindset, why some people see things clearly and others don't. But first, here's a message from our sponsor.
1: to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy to use, easy onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners you need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as one forty nine a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.
0: Julia Galef is the host of the popular podcast, Rationally Speaking, and is the founder of the Center for Applied Rationality. She has consulted for organizations including OpenAI and Open Philanthropy her TED Talk, Why You Think You're Right, Even If You're Wrong, has been viewed over four million times. And now she's the author of the book, The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. On today's episode, Julie and I discuss how our beliefs of the world adjust to accommodate our track record, why we cling to ideas even when the evidence suggests there is a better way forward, how to express uncertainty, and what it means to be intellectually honest. I'm excited to share these lessons and more from Julia's new book on another episode of The Burleson Box. Julia, thanks so much for joining me today. It's an honor to have you on the program.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: I love your new book. First, thank you for writing it. I know it took a ton of effort to get
2: <laughs> It out. did. Thank you for appreciating that. I, <laughs> I, I, it did.
0: I'm curious what motivated you to write about this subject, and what is Scout Mindset?
2: Yeah, so The Scout Mindset is the title of my book, and it's also my name for a uh, way of thinking. Um, so the, the framing metaphor of the book is that we humans in general are often in what I call soldier mindset, um, which is the motivation to defend your pre-existing beliefs or defend things you want to believe against any evidence that might threaten them um, and you know, shoot down opposing arguments and, um, and avoid contradictory evidence and so on. And so scout mindset is an alternative to that um, because the scout's role, unlike the soldier, is not to attack or defend. It's just to go out and see what's really there and try to put together as accurate a map of a situation or an issue as possible, um, including things that you don't know or that you have uncertainty about um, and being willing to... Or even excited to revise your map as you learn new things and discover what you were wrong about. So that's why I use the term scout mindset. And the motivation for writing the book was basically you know, I've spent the last 10 years of my life uh, being a writer and a podcaster and a consultant. And I ran some workshops uh, at a, a educational nonprofit that I co-founded, all about um, how do we improve our judgment and reasoning, especially about really important and complicated topics. And I just uh, increasingly came to feel like the the discourse around this topic of improving our judgment was missing this really important factor, um, which was the motivation behind our thinking. Uh, Because, you know, most of the books and articles about how do we think better and reason better, they focus on giving people knowledge. Like, you know, here's a list of cognitive biases or here's a list of logical fallacies. And I'm not saying that's not important because I think it is, but I think what's even more important is the motivation that you have to use that knowledge. Um, Like, are you motivated to use that knowledge to actually examine your own thinking and discover flaws or biases you hadn't been aware of? Or are you motivated to use it to, you know, Find flaws in other people's arguments that you wanted to shoot down anyway. And I think this is a common trope you're probably already familiar with. If you, you know, go to any online uh, forum, like on Reddit, there'll be people who come armed with lists of cognitive biases and fallacies. And they just (laughs) use that as, you know, a cudgel to like beat other people over the head with. (laughs) And so I, yeah, this just seemed like a really important, uh, really overlooked element in good judgment um, that I I wanted to make more prominent, which is the the motivation that's guiding your thinking.
0: It's why I love the book so much. And it, there, I mean, listen, you know, there's other there are other great books out there that talk about rationality. You can go back to like Thinking Fast and Slow or Predictably uh-huh. Irrational. But it, I think that was just like the primer because it just got you excited. For, like, okay, this is where we fool ourselves. But your book goes, I think, in I shouldn't say a better direction, but in a, in a, it takes it a, a step different. further and gives, gives you, uh, I don't want to, like, nothing like dissing Daniel Kahneman on, on a podcast. <laughs> um, I, it gives you practical tools to actually see and maybe identify scout mindset or to identify in yourself when you are clinging to the soldier mindset. I'd never heard that metaphor before the scout versus soldier, and then I saw your TED talk. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is great!" So, can you kind of maybe? I guess a, a next question might be, "Why is our default soldier mindset?"
2: Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting and important question, and I I spent a lot of time thinking and reading uh, to or you know researching this question because I really wanted to do justice to soldier mindset and not just write a book saying, you know, oh, social mindset's terrible. Let's do this other thing instead. Um, because as I say in the book, I, I try to follow this principle um, called Chesterton's fence, um, which is that before you try to knock something down or, or try to abolish something, you should make sure you really understand why it's there in the first place. Um, and the term Chesterton's fence comes from this essay by a, a British essayist named G.K. Chesterton, where he kind of tells this little parable of, you know, suppose you're, you um, you buy some property and you are out walking and you, you discover that some previous owner has built a fence across one of the roads. And you say to yourself, well, I don't see any reason for this fence to be here. Let's knock it down. Um, and he says, you know, if you don't understand why the fence is there, you should be a little wary about knocking it down. So you should go off and make sure you understand why it was put there before you feel confident about taking it away. Uh, so anyway, that that is why I wanted to make sure I understood what is what is soldier mindset doing there in our brains in the first place um, before I tell people we should try to knock it down? And uh, the answer is multifold. I think there are multiple things that we try to use soldier mindset for. Um, But to just summarize, uh, we use soldier mindset to feel good and look good. Um, And so feeling good could consist of things like protecting our egos, you know, uh, defending beliefs about ourselves and about how we're, you know good and virtuous and competent people and we did the right thing and we weren't responsible for the bad things that happened um it could consist of feeling good about our lives or the world you know telling ourselves um comforting narratives about how the world works that you know bad people will will be end up being punished and uh, everything will work out for the best and then looking good is it's about how we present ourselves to other people um so uh, we sometimes defend beliefs that help us persuade other people. Like, you know, if you're a, a founder of a company, uh, you have a strong motivation to convince yourself that everything is going great and you're going to be the next Google, so that you can feel more confident making those claims to other people, like investors, who you might want to believe those things. Um, and, and we also care a lot about looking good in the sense of uh, the people in our tribe, our social groups, our community seeing us as, you know, good people and, and having the right beliefs and being part of the group. And so that also gives us a strong motivation to defend beliefs that our tribe agrees with and thinks are the right, you know, political or ethical or ideological beliefs. So that's just kind of a taste of all the things that we uh, use soldier mindset for. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge that those are, those are totally legitimate goals to feel good and look good. Um, and I think those are very important part of being human but i think that we don't we don't actually need soldier mindset to look good and feel good nearly as much as we kind of intuitively think we do and that in fact we can use uh scout mindset to look good and feel good as well without all the and then you know without suffering all the downsides of soldier mindset like distorting our judgment so and you give
0: it's, it's great and you give some excellent examples in the book of people you would think and on the surface are very persuasive but do it with a scout mindset you talk about Jeff Bezos and how he exactly. initially got his first investment you talk about Elon Musk right and how they assign really low probability of success to companies that have been wildly successful can you kind of dig into why maybe soldier mindset backfires and why we won't see that scout is uh, is better i guess yeah
2: so you know the one of the things that i didn't mention in my my long screed a minute ago uh, that we use soldier mindset for is to motivate ourselves. Um, So to, you know, convince ourselves that if we just work hard, we're definitely going to succeed at whatever project or endeavor, like starting a company. Um, And, and that can be motivating that kind of false confidence that you're definitely going to succeed um, that can motivate you to work hard and persevere through hard times. But it also comes with the downside of, you know, not being true um, that you have this guarantee of success, because entrepreneurship is a very risky and um, and chance filled business uh, and and because it's not true, you know you can end up making bad decisions, like sticking it out much longer than you should have and and you know not in fact pivoting to a different business or a different business plan um, or investing you know risking a lot of your capital on a business plan that actually you know, was never never had a very good chance of success in the first place, um, or just like not spending the time to look for different plans that might be better than the first one you thought of, and, and just committing to that wholeheartedly and not looking for something better. So, these are all downsides of of optimism in your business, and so it's much better if you can motivate yourself without having to believe falsely that you're guaranteed a success. And so, in the book, I look at some examples of people. Who were able to do that? Um, Very, very, you know, driven and hardworking and and quite successful entrepreneurs who believed from the start that yeah, this is quite risky. (laughs) This, you know, this business will probably fail because most businesses probably fail. Um, And yet, it's still an important and valuable thing to try, and it's worth trying anyway. And so, Elon Musk is actually an example uh, in this category because um, most people don't realize this. But when he first founded Tesla and also SpaceX, he Believed there to be only about a ten percent chance of success um, that that either company would become successful, and he said as much from day one in you know interviews that he's given about his companies, and and the low odds that he assigns to his company's success tend to baffle people. Like one interviewer um, on sixty Minutes was like, "Well, but if you think you're probably going to fail, then why try?" And Elon's answer is always, "Well, if you think something's important enough, then it's worth trying." Um, And so you know. The, a way to summarize this type of motivation, this more kind of reality-based motivation, is um, that it's about expected value. So if you, you know, if you think that something is probably going to fail, uh, then it can still be worth doing if the upside is large enough and the downside is tolerable. Um, and so for, for Elon Musk, yeah, the upside of SpaceX or Tesla succeeding is huge. And the downside is tolerable. You know, he's not going to be personally ruined. Um, he can still s- try again with a different company. And he, you know, still felt like he would probably make some progress in um, helping electric cars or space exploration become uh, uh, more of a reality. And so, yeah, in, in his calculus, the expected value of starting a company like Tesla or SpaceX was very positive, even if the most likely outcome was failure. And so, this is a different way of thinking about uh, what can motivate you. Um, that is, you know, it's probabilistic thinking essentially, and it's less common than this kind of false optimistic approach to motivation. But I think it's uh, much more valuable because it doesn't force you to, you know, deceive yourself and reject any evidence that might tell you that your plan is flawed or, or you know, that you're that things are going badly. So that's that's one way in which. Uh, I argue we don't actually need soldier mindset in order to get these things that are important to us, like the motivation to do something hard.
0: I I, I really want to kind of double click on that topic because <laughs> the listeners in this audience are mostly professional practice owners who've been to, you know, eight, 10, 12, 16 years of professional education and given a lot of very one path only, you know, kind of right. Mindset. We joke in medicine that you know like if the patient's allergic to penicillin you might want to keep them only around very unopened bottles of penicillin if you know the surgical procedure is named after you it's really hard to admit when there's a better technique that comes along so uh, which we tend to do in medicine and so that's a good point we'll go back to but also there were tremendous scouts in my training and, and I, that I consider mentors. And so I want to talk about how to look for some of those signs of scouts, but I want to kind of double click on Elon Musk and that don't you think, and I guess the, I don't know, but someone who goes into a new enterprise assigning it a 10% probability of success, while most I think, or a lot of people in Silicon Valley will say, Oh, we're, it's absolutely going to succeed at hundred mm-hmm. percent success. Right. Don't you think that opens him up in his scout mindset to see more than one path and actually couldn't that, and I don't know, couldn't that increase his odds of success? Uh,
2: Yes. So I think this is an underappreciated benefit of, you know, trying to think realistically about your odds of success at some endeavor. Um, People tend to focus just on, you know, once you've chosen a path, shouldn't you believe in it wholeheartedly? Um, But there's never only one path to choose, you know, even, even within one particular business idea, there's lots of different ways you could try to execute that, um, and yeah, there's lots of different business ideas that you could pursue. And and even zooming out farther, there's lots of different careers that you could choose. You know, it's possible that you know entrepreneurship isn't really the career for you, and you you know be way more successful and happy in a different career. Um, and so, you know, trying these are difficult choices to to try to weigh all these different possibilities and really think about. Uh, the upsides and downsides and, you know, what's worth risking. So I won't deny those are difficult choices. But in order to 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 try to make those difficult choices well, you know, you have to have as realistic a sense of the different probabilities involved uh, of the different paths as you can. Um, and there's no guaranteed right answer. But, you know, to, an important first step is just to try to think clearly about the different uh, odds of success and failure involved in your in your different choices. So, um, yeah, in the case of Elon Musk, I, I don't know a lot about the, the thinking behind how he, how he settled on, you know, the particular plan for Tesla or for SpaceX. Um, but I know that he does think about his companies as kind of portfolios of bets. Um, and this is, I think an, an important thing that makes this probabilistic thinking approach to motivation work, um, is just keeping in mind that, you know yes you're fixated on one particular project at the moment this one particular company that you're starting or one investment but that's not the only bet you're ever going to take in your life you know over the course of your lifetime someone like Elon Musk can start i would say at least 10 companies like Tesla or SpaceX and so that knowledge makes the 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 risk much easier to stomach because you know if you think about just a traditional portfolio of investments you you accept that any one investment might not do well but you know altogether the whole portfolio is much more likely to benefit you you know on net and so the bets that you take in your life the investments that you make um, over the course of your lifetime are kind of like that just spread out more in time and not all made at, at once in one uh, in one investment portfolio and so uh, yeah, it just makes it a lot easier to accept the reality of risk if you know that you know any one bet is risky, but the entire portfolio has a much higher chance of success overall. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And then considering the flip side, and you, you have a great quote in the book on so if we do the opposite, right, and cling to the soldier mindset that you say, quote over time, our beliefs about the world adjust to accommodate our track record. That's quote. right. As I mean, yep. that just I that just slapped me in the forehead. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, cause that, you know, there's a big sacrifice we make when we ignore that truth or we put all of our eggs in one basket and we refuse to change our mind about that basket.
2: That's right. Yeah. That was, I I think I brought that up in the context of talking about a study that followed college students over the course of their whole college career and asked them before each semester or each quarter, I forget um, how they expected to perform academically and then followed up at the end of the quarter or semester to see what their actual grades turned out to be. And and some students kind of consistently underperformed their expectations of themselves. They were overly optimistic about their academic performance, um, which, you know, according to this kind of common wisdom about how it's good to to be over-optimistic because that motivates you, that should have helped the students, um, this overoptimism but in fact it didn't it, d- it didn't actually improve their performance over time instead what it did is it caused the students to cope with the disappointment of underperforming by changing their views about well how important is education anyway <laughs> and so they they were more likely to downgrade the value of education or downgrade the importance of education to them um, in their lives over time, which is, you know, this is a great example of using soldier mindset to kind of protect your ego, um, changing, like adapting your narrative about how the world works or what's important to you, um, in the face of, of, uh, disappointing evidence. Um, and that's very understandable. I, I totally get that impulse and I've done that before too. It's just, you know, unfortunate to have to distort your picture of the world or of what, you know, matters in your life, um, as a, As a response to disappointment, I think there are better ways to deal with it.
0: (laughs) I agree. There's a lot of those in the book. That might have been Gabrielle Ettingen's research, who's been on this program, and it was was met with a lot of skepticism when I think she published in the 90s and at NYU. She was going against the grain of just think positive, and you know everything will manifest in your life. And she's like, actually, (laughs) turns out with a lot of these studies, the opposite is true. but we have yeah. that, right? In the, particularly in this country. So about a quarter of our members are international, and they don't seem to struggle with this as much. And that this kind of Puritan work ethic in the United States of like just work harder and, and it'll come true. You know, that's not the case, is it?
2: Um. Oh the the Puritan. Work harder, and every all your dreams will come true. Yeah, message? just
0: think positive <laughs> and work hard. And, you know, like, and I grew up with that. My grandfather was a coal miner, and it was just, well, just work harder. And like, what? But what if yeah. I'm on the wrong path?
2: <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, like, like with all kind of folk wisdom or 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 kind of common sayings, there's there is some truth to it. Um, it is true that all else equal, working hard is going to make you more likely to succeed and and achieve what you want in the world. Um, It's just, you know, the truth is a lot more nuanced than that. (laughs) And, um, you know, if your your way of motivating yourself to work hard causes you to, like, blinds you to the choices um, involved in success, then that could end up being a net negative for you. Um, And if your way of motivating yourself to work hard requires you to deceive yourself about what's actually possible or likely, then that also has downsides. So yeah, it's uh I, I just think people tend to underrate all of the ways to get the things we want, like motivation, without, you know, falling back on just lying to ourselves or distorting our judgment. So that that was like one of another one of my main motivations in writing the book was I felt like there were all these all these different strategies for looking good and feeling good that People were neglecting, and they were just telling themselves, "Well, there's this unfortunate trade-off. You know, we can either see things realistically, or we can be happy and successful." And so, I kind of wanted to shake people by the shoulders and say, "No, that's not true. You don't have to, you know, resign yourself to that trade-off. You can, you can have both: uh, a realistic picture of the world and uh, happiness and success."
0: Which is so motivating, right? Because that's I've I've said that before. Because I'm. I kind of have this reputation in our industry of just being really pragmatic and just like you know, nice. Never, you know, I would say shouldn't say never, but I, I joke and say no one's going to ask me to come give a motivational speech at the annual association. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's
0: like this is not how it really is, you know. So I knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> one big challenge in our industry is the advent of telehealth and teledentistry, which. I think you'll get you might get a kick out of this. You know, we were staunchly opposed to pre-pandemic. I think at St. Luke's, one of the hospitals where I'm on the medical staff, they, they were doing like 20 to maybe no more than 200 telehealth visits in the cardiology department per month. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic happened, it ballooned to 20,000 per month and I don't think we're going back. Like why make a patient drive an hour and wait in a reception room to do something that could be done remotely and yeah. You know, I don't know who said it. It was someone much smarter than me that said, you know, these times of crisis really breed a lot of innovation. And I think he said it smarter than I he said, innovation loves crisis. And, you know, I think some of the tools you're giving in the book help help us see different ways of achieving a goal where we don't have to lose that look good, feel good. You know, you don't have to give that up, I guess, as you said it more succinctly.
2: Uh, I, I'm, I've rarely been accused of being succinct, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, uh, I might've yeah.
0: might just beaten you on the, on the verbosity of like, that was a long way of saying, you, you know, you don't have to say, I think a lot of people look at a book about rationality or a book about, you know, emotional uh, kind of intellectual honesty and, and getting to the core of who you want to be as a person and think, all right, well, I'm going to trade off all the other things in life that are. Fun and spontaneous, and I have to be rational about every decision I make. I guess yeah. uh, you're you're making the argument that that's not true.
2: Yeah, and I think another thing that's going on um, with this this confusion or this misunderstanding that I see in people is is just conflating making yourself feel good with deceiving yourself. Um, and those are those are actually two different things. And I, I think of kind of two overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram, where one one of the circles is things that make you feel good or, or, you know, comfort yourself in the face of stress or fear. And the other circle is things that are true or at least, you know, justified based on the facts as you know them. Um, and I claim you should be looking for things in the intersection of those two circles and that there are a lot of things that are both comforting and true um, and that people by default just aren't really tracking that distinction. And so they just, they reach for something comforting and sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not, and they're not really paying attention. To that uh, that difference, but uh, but I argue since you can have it have both true and comforting, why not have both true and comforting? Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, just one example like people. Um, there's this example you brought up, Danny Kahneman, before, and I also loved Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, but there's this one kind of almost offhand point he made in the book that I disagreed with, um, where he was talking about um, the c- potential upsides to Uh, irrationality and one of the upsides he brought up was essentially feeling good and the example he gave was a door-to-door salesman who gets the door slammed in his face by some angry uh, homemaker and so Danny Kahneman says you know uh, isn't it going to be much, isn't it much better to tell yourself um, well that person was just a jerk um, rather than to tell yourself well I guess I'm a bad salesperson Uh, and The way he framed it like that, okay, yeah, I guess maybe it's better to, you know, you'll feel better about yourself if you blame that event on the person who slammed the door in your face. But it's not like those are our only two choices. There are so many ways to make yourself feel better after a setback that don't require you to just lie to yourself. Like, you could tell yourself, well, okay, yeah, she slammed the door in my face, but... Um, at least I only get doors slammed in my face once a week now instead of once a day, I'm getting better. (laughs) Right? Like that's a thing to feel happy about. Or you could tell yourself, you know, everyone gets doors slammed in their face. Sometimes this is, this is does not make me uniquely bad. Like that's also a comforting fact that happens to also be true. Um, Or you could just, you know, focus on things you could do better in the future and feel happy about the fact that you're, this is going to happen less often in the future. Anyway, there's tons of different things that you could focus on that, can help you deal with these inevitable setbacks, like when someone slams the door in your face or you get rejected or fail, et cetera, that don't require you to just tell yourself a falsehood. And so I think we could, we might as well just focus on those things that are both comforting and true.
0: It's great. And because there's a tendency in this group with surgeons and dentists and healthcare providers to try to be perfectionists. And so then the opposite, right. be, oh, well, I failed once. So I'm I am I am a failure or I'm never going to try that again in, in how we hire and how we manage and how we promote our practices. Um, I, I really, I love that example and, the, <laughs> and that you took condiment to task. Like, wait a minute, this isn't Just binary. a little bit. He, he, can, take <laughs>
2: little he bit. can take it. He can take it.
0: Just a Nobel Prize winner. No big deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to talk about, I, I mentioned it that I had really great and still have great mentors in my life who are scouts. And I found myself now particularly latching onto this metaphor that's brilliant in your book and really your idea that, you know, what would that person, would that mentor of mine, would they see it this way? And so Mm -hmm. can you talk about some, maybe share some signs of a scout?
2: Yeah. Um, I think it's typically people, um, the temptation is to say, well, you know, I feel like I'm a scout or I like the idea of being a scout. And so therefore I'm a scout. And I I think that can be a little bit deceptive because, um, kind of oversimplifying here, but like everyone feels like they're a scout, you know, Uh, (laughs) like the people who are, you see online who are being really unreasonable and who just infuriate you with how, how biased they're being or their unwillingness to acknowledge like self evident truths. Like those people feel like they're being scouts too. (laughs) And so (laughs) we kind of need more objective, um, more objective metrics, uh, or or you know, behavioral signs that you're actually practicing scout mindset instead of just you know feeling like well yes of course I'm objective and reasonable, uh, and so I talk about some of those in the book. Um, I think one sign is just whether you can name critics of yours who you think are reasonable, um, because you know it's easy to focus on criticism that is unfair or unreasonable. Um, And I I certainly get my fair share of criticism that I think is unreasonable. Um, And it's, I'm sure it's true that you have critics who are unreasonable, like people who disagree with your political views, you know, people who attack you on Facebook for your um, posts about politics, um, or just people who, who disagree with your Career maybe like if you're in tech and people you know are criticizing the the world of tech or you're in the military and people criticize the military whatever it is everyone has critics um, and so can you in addition to you know being annoyed at the people who are unreasonably criticizing you can you identify people who you think well you know they have a fair point like maybe I don't agree but I can see how a smart and, you know, well-intentioned and reasonable person could hold this view that is critical of me. That alone, I think, is a is a pretty rare, um, a pretty rare sign uh, and, and a pretty strong correlate of actually caring about the truth more than you care about defending your own ego. Um, so that's one sign. Um, another sign is just whether you can remember actual times, hopefully in recent memory, in which you've changed your mind and realized you were wrong about something. Um, this also is not, not very common. And I think a strong sign of scout mindset, uh, and, you know, bonus points. If you actually tell the person, you know what, I think you were right about this thing that we disagreed about and I was wrong. Uh, and I have an example from actually one of my, uh, not mentors, but role models, um, who did this, Abraham Lincoln wrote this lovely letter to Ulysses Grant during the civil war in which he said, you know, this maneuver that you just executed, where you, uh, captured the city of Vicksburg. I really did not think that was going to work. And I thought you were making a mistake when you decided to do that. Um, but it turns out that I was wrong and you were right. And I'm, I'm so glad that I d- deferred to your judgment. And you know, Lincoln didn't have to write this letter. No one forced him to. But he just thought it was really important to acknowledge when someone else was right. And so he did. And I, I really love that and find it kind of inspiring. And I think it's a, a strong sign of, of scout mindset and someone who you can you know, look to as a as a good role model of being a scout.
0: It's such a great example, and it, I believe in the book you share that you know the people around Lincoln were like, "Oh yeah, totally something he would do." <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. They're like, "This was wholly characteristic <laughs> of Lincoln."
0: <laughs> it, there's a heartwarming story. I won't ruin it. Won't ruin the the ending, but the end of the book shares another heartwarming story that could really bring tears to your eyes, particularly if you're I know, you know me in too. the science realm, just amazing.
2: Yeah, and I I one of my motivations also in writing the book was to give people a bunch of these examples that are, I think, often inspiring and kind of heartwarming and at the very least provide kind of a template, a, a sort of emotionally salient and vivid template for, oh, that's a, a way I could behave. Because we just we don't have a lot of these salient stories of people being, you know, truth-seeking and intellectually honest. And so um, that makes it really hard to to remember to do it ourselves or to be motivated to do it ourselves. And so I kind of threw just a bunch of my favorite examples at people in hopes that that would inspire and motivate them the way that it has inspired and motivated me.
0: It does. It's, it's great. And so one one caution, I guess, is that if you, and there's a tendency to do this, right, where we we see a new concept and we're like, all right, this is great. I got to share this with the team because um, most of the people listening to this are either team leaders or professional practice owners. And if you bought the book and you've got it in your hands and you're thinking, well, I'm so rational, that now I need to take this book and give it to everyone around me so they can see things the way I'm seeing it. That's not a uh-huh. scout mindset, right? <laughs>
2: That's right. Yeah, I did. I have heard from some people who, you know, bless their hearts, were, were like, uh, thank you for writing this book. Now I can use it to show all the soldiers around me how they're being soldiers. <laughs> I kind of wanted to be like, oh, I'm not sure I fully succeeded <laughs> with my goal there. Uh,
0: but at least they have the book. There's a chance. Yeah, There's that's hope. true. <laughs> uh, and I
2: also was trying to kind of lead by example and, and share a bunch of stories of noticing that myself in soldier mindset, um, like times when I've, uh, not reacted well to criticism or times when I've noticed that I was, um, kind of fooling myself or trying to convince myself of something comforting, um, because it, this is so universal and, and just an innate part of how the human brain works that, uh, you know, just being aware of soldier mindset doesn't mean you, you know, aren't going to be doing it automatically a lot of the time, um, as I can certainly, as I have definitely an example of. Um, and, you know, if you don't notice yourself in soldier mindset, I think that's, that's not a sign, that's not a good sign, you know, because what is more likely that you are just an exception to the entirety of humanity? You're like the one person who never does this thing, <laughs> or that you're just not as self-aware as you could be. And that's- I kind of think the latter. <laughs>
0: That's great. I I don't know enough about evolutionary biology to make a wise comment on this, but it seems like our old like lizard brains, you know, just do inherently, even subconsciously, maybe. I don't, I'm curious your thought on that. Protect us from, you know, go back thousands of years, millions of years. We were pretty good odds. We were going to be eaten by a saber tooth tiger or something. And so Uh we're in this protective kind of defensive soldier mindset. And then we bring that into a complex business environment with employees and key performance indicators and, you know, market statistics and our position and how we treat patients and medicine and science and all the things that have happened since then. And we kind of cling to that soldier mindset. Is that, what are your thoughts on like the underlying kind of subconscious drivers that keep us in soldier mindset?
2: Yeah, I, I thought about this a lot. And I think at best we can kind of be speculative when it comes to, evolutionary uh psychology um and and trying to explain why did we evolve this way um but i do think there's some pretty compelling speculations um that we can make about how this happened and one of them is that we we're kind of by default very risk averse like very um wired to be afraid of taking risks yep. um, and that uh, that does include kind of social risks. So as I've been, as we've kind of touched on several times in this conversation, one of the main motivations behind soldier mindset is uh, a social motivation to avoid seeming, um, you know, wrong or incompetent or disloyal to your peer group. Um, And so it's not that social factors don't matter at all, because it does matter whether people think you're you know, a good person and whether they like you and think you're part of the tribe. But we already know that the human brain is such that we tend to be really risk averse socially. Like we tend to be really afraid of taking even like small risks of social rejection or, um, or you know, looking foolish socially. You know, this is why we uh, we're often just paralyzed by fear at the thought of, you know, asking a stranger out at a bar or something like that, which, you know, if they say no, that actually doesn't have a big impact on our lives. It's not the end of the world at all if someone rejects us who we're never gonna see again. But it feels like the end of the world because we're really wired to be just extremely averse to any, you know, potential social downside. Um, and I, I do think, again, to speculate a little more, I think this it makes sense if you think about the environment in which we evolved where there weren't strangers. There was just our tribe, this like tight-knit small group of people who you spend your whole lives with and who you rely on for. Uh, you know, protection and, and um, passing on your genes. (laughs) And so in that environment, it actually does make sense to be pretty averse to the risk of um, alienating the people who you rely on for survival. Um, But that's less true in the modern age. Um, It is, it's less true that your survival and genetic success depends on never offending anyone. And so I think we can afford to be a little bit more um, tolerant of risk when it comes to you know disagreeing with people or holding opinions that don't necessarily um, uh, portray us in exactly the same light as as you know people expect. So that's one thing um, that I think we can we can be more tolerant of risk socially than we kind of intuitively feel like we can. Um, I like and that. then yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll mention one other thing, which is just that we by default are very. Uh, we overweight the immediate consequences of our actions. Um, so we're much more motivated by like, what rewards or punishments do I get right now? And and less so by the rewards or punishments that we get, you know, a year in the future, uh, which is why we procrastinate and we, you know, we'll eat the cupcake now and put off our diet till tomorrow and things like that. That's a very well-known feature of human psychology. Um, but I think that this also tends to result in us being in scout mindset less often than we should because, um, the rewards of soldier mindset are often very immediate. Like you feel good right away or you, you know, look good right away, but the rewards of scout mindset are a little more delayed. Um, although they are very significant, I think, um, you know, the reward of, of acknowledging to yourself that you made a mistake uh, is that in the future, you're less likely to make mistakes, but you don't necessarily feel really good right away. And so it does take some amount of kind of willpower or longer-term thinking to be able to appreciate the rewards of, you know, in the long run, seeing things clearly. Does
0: Absolutely, that make sense? Yeah. No, that's great. I, I hope everyone goes goes back and re-listens to that segment. I know I know I will because I need to hear it often. Yeah, it's so do so, I. <laughs> so tempting to get the immediate reward of, of soldier mindset. Uh, I want to talk about thought experiments. I was reading this chapter... On thought experiments that help us detect motivated reasoning, detect Uh when we're doing this soldier mindset thing. And as I was reading that, I was like, Julia would be a great guest for Shane Parrish's
2: podcast. And I went
0: way back in the history. I was like, of course, she's already been on the Knowledge. Yeah,
2: (laughs) back in the early days, early days. Yeah,
0: I thought. Well, I just had to go and I keep scrolling far enough, and there you were. So, can you talk about thought experiments and maybe what they do and what they don't do?
2: Yeah. So the thing that's so insidious about. Soldier mindset or as it's called officially in like the cognitive science literature, directionally motivated reasoning. Um, I just prefer the more metaphorical soldier mindset. Um, the thing that's so insidious about it is that when you're in it, it doesn't feel like you're in it um, and so if you're you know, let's say you encounter a study that goes against something you believe like well, when I was writing the book, I found a study that said, oh, soldier mindset turns out makes you successful in life. And so that goes against what I believe and what I was trying to argue in the book. And so, of course, you know, I have this motivation to reject it. Um, and so, you know, I went through the study looking for flaws in the methodology. And I did find a bunch of flaws. It was actually a pretty poorly done study. Um, but then I, I stopped and just asked myself, OK, suppose this study had instead found the conclusion that scout mindset makes you successful in life, how would I have reacted then? Um, And I realized, oh, in that case, I would have said, great, this is, I should put the study in my book because it supports my thesis. And (laughs) so that was a thought experiment that I just did where I kind of imagined, I, I imagined this hypothetical world in which things were a little bit different. And I observed what my reaction would be in that hypothetical world. And, the reason that, that is that kind of thought experiment can be so valuable in, in making you more self-aware is that before I did it, when I was just kind of going through the study hunting for flaws, you know, I felt like I was being a critical thinker. And I was. I was like, I was I was critically evaluating the methodology of the study. So I felt, you know, I'm being smart, I'm being skeptical. And it's true that I was. It's just that if you only apply that level of critical thinking and skepticism to things that you disagree with or, you know, don't want to believe, then you end up with this really asymmetric, um, you know, set of beliefs about the world in which you let in the things that, uh, that you want to believe and you, you know, keep out the things you don't want to believe. But, but in the moment, it doesn't feel like you're being biased because you're only, uh, you're only in that one world in which the studies, you know, goes against your conclusions and you haven't looked at the, how you would have reacted in that hypothetical world in which things were different. Um, this might actually be a good point, uh, a, a good time to bring up what I think is my favorite definition of how soldier mindset works, uh, which comes from a psychologist named Tom Gilovich. He says that when, we, uh, if, when we're when we evaluating an idea that we want to believe, we evaluate it through the lens of, can I believe it? And when we're evaluating an idea that we don't want to believe, we instead evaluate it through the lens, must I believe it? Just you know, looking for any excuse to reject it. And so... Uh, the thought experiment can help you s- juxtapose those two different ways of evaluating an idea against each other and notice, oh, I would be evaluating this idea through a must-eye lens if the conclusions were different, um, but instead I'm evaluating it through a can-eye lens. So that's one type of thought experiment, um, but just generally speaking, thought experiments can help you notice when your motivations are influencing the way that you're reasoning and the, you know, the standard to which you're holding some claim.
0: I think it's a testament to your book. And it's, it's evident when, so people listening as you go through the book, it, it, to me, it was like, oh my gosh, like, this is so good. And I think the reason is, we spoke kind of offline, that you could have written many versions of this book, but based yeah. on your intellectual honesty, you you saw a lot of research that just didn't cut it in terms of being able to put it into the text, right?
2: Yeah, that thought, so that thought experiment I did where I imagined the study had found had supported my conclusion instead of opposing it, uh, that made me realize I needed to up my game and be, you know, more skeptical of studies that supported my conclusion. And so I went back through all of these studies that I had bookmarked to put in the book, um, and kind of tried to evaluate their methodology through the same, you know, critical lens and decided actually a lot of these are not strong enough for me to feel like I can really you know get behind them and and put them in my book as evidence and so I had to throw a lot of them out and rewrite some sections of the book that I had previously written uh but I feel uh I feel much more confident in the in the claims that I'm making now than I did before
0: oh absolutely Um, and it's I mean I think it just goes to how and I think this will help the group and and particularly in chapter 9 Talking about uncertainty because we're really bad yeah. as doctors at expressing any level of uncertainty. You know, what's the diagnosis? Well, it could be this or it could be that. Um, yeah. Can you, can you talk about different types of confidence and uncertainty?
2: Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Um, that's one of my favorite findings um, from the from writing the section on uncertainty. So there's there's this common belief that I've often heard, including from some doctors, that there's this this expectation from patients that you have a definitive answer for them. And that if you can't give them a definitive answer, then they're going to lose some trust in you as a doctor uh, and and just generally be unhappy. <laughs> and I I get why people think this. Um, and there are some studies that have found that, you know, yeah, when doctors express uncertainty, it, it they lose trust from their patients. Um, but there are also studies that have found that that patients don't mind hearing uncertainty from doctors, and so this is an interesting puzzle to me. Why are why are we getting such different results in different studies? And I think the answer lies in what exactly what type of uncertainty the doctors are expressing. And so, if you look at the studies, uh, the the cases where the doctors uh, where patients don't like hearing uncertainty from doctors, the type of uncertainty that the doctors are expressing in those cases are things like, "Well, I really don't know what's causing your headache," or uh, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, and I think it makes sense that it's reasonable for a patient to think, well, you know, maybe a better or more experienced doctor would know the answer. I, I think that's a reasonable, you know, conclusion for the patients to draw. But in the cases where, uh, the patients were fine with hearing uncertainty, in those cases, the doctors were saying things like this, you know, well, I can't know for sure, you know, whether you're going to get breast cancer, but here are some of the risk factors. Um, And I would say, you know, based on these risk factors, you have maybe a a 20% chance of developing breast cancer, you know, and if you do X, Y, and Z, then statistically that will improve your chances, et cetera. And so that is a statement of uncertainty. The doctor is saying, I don't know, but they're, they're giving a lot of relevant information and they're kind of demonstrating in the way they answer the patient's questions that there is just inevitable uncertainty in the world. We can't know for sure uh, if someone is going to, you know, develop this disease or how it's going to turn out, but uh, we can reduce the uncertainty as much as possible with information. And so, you know, I'm giving you that information. And so basically the the doctor is showing that they are an expert and they're showing that they have, you know, sufficiently understood this issue um, to whatever extent possible, And so the patient hears that and thinks, okay, good, you know, yes, I don't have a definitive answer, but I feel like my doctor's on top of things and they've, they've, you know, given me as definitive an answer as is possible to. And so that is, I think that's a really important um, distinction between two different kinds of uncertainty. One where it seems like, you know, you just don't know and, you know, maybe someone else would, but you don't. Um, And then the other where you are explaining the inherent uncertainty that exists in the world and you're helping the patient cope with that uncertainty. And so if you can do the latter, I think you should be fine.
0: Yeah. I really enjoyed that segment of the book. It was surprising to me and I like, okay, yeah. let, yeah, just in a delightful way.
2: Yeah. I mean, and even, you can even go a step further and, you know, if you're worried that your patient might expect more certainty than is possible, you can kind of set their expectations, uh, sometimes bluntly by saying look you know as one expert who i quoted in the book says you know if if someone tells you that they can know for sure like what's going to happen or they know for sure you know how your your case is going to turn out you should run yep. because they can't they don't know for sure and you know they're misleading you yep. and that is that's like a, actually a pretty pretty compelling and confident statement to make about why uncertainty is justified and i think that that can almost paradoxically paradoxically be very, um, very like persuasive and trust-building for patients or
0: absolutely you know, anyone. Absolutely. Run and, and hold on to your wallet while, while running. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned in the book, and I, I think it's maybe you tell me, pretty obvious that Darwin's had a big influence on your career and on your writings. You mentioned his oh, golden rule, which is what I really appreciate it. And I'm curious if you still do this. This goes way back. I don't think this is in the book. If it is, I missed it. Do you still keep a surprise journal? And kind of how did that evolve?
2: Yeah. So I one of the things I talk about in the book is is about leaning into confusion, um, which by that I basically mean... You know, we tend when the world contradicts our expectations, um, like when something doesn't turn out the way you expected, you know, the election doesn't uh, produce the result you thought it would, or someone behaves in a way that's surprising to you or seems irrational or, you know, crazy. Someone believes something that you can't believe they believe it. Um, in all of those cases, our, in, our impulse is to find a way to explain away the surprising results um, in a way that's still consistent with our beliefs about the world. Um, So, you know, if I'm if I think I'm a great teacher and I get surprisingly poor teacher ratings, I could try to explain that away by saying, well, you know, the subject I'm teaching is hard and students probably didn't like that it was a hard topic. And so that's why they gave me low ratings or something. You can always find some way to explain away surprising data in the world um, that doesn't require you to change what you believe Um, So that's a very understandable impulse, but I think we should fight it and instead lean into confusion and be especially interested in things that contradict our expectations, you know, be fascinated by the fact that, that, you know, these people seem to be behaving irrationally, but that's, that's interesting. Why, why might their behavior actually be rational in a way that I can't quite see yet? Or why might this seem like a rational thing to do to them? Um, You can kind of turn these surprising uh, observations into puzzles worth solving. And I think that uh, over time leads to a much more like richer and more accurate understanding of what's going on than just trying to shoehorn every new observation into your pre-existing view of the world. Um, and so this, as you mentioned, this is something that Darwin was really good at. He had what he called a golden rule that he would follow, where any time he came across an observation that didn't fit his theory of evolution by natural selection, he would Force himself to really focus on it and and obsess over it um, rather than ignoring it as he would be tempted to do. Um, And that process of obsessing over things that didn't fit his theory ended up, it it forced him to revise and refine his theory over time and ended up making it much stronger in in the end. Um, So for example, his, uh, one of these observations that he obsessed over was the existence of the peacock's tail, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it didn't, his theory was, Uh, that features that help an animal survive will tend to last and and get passed down to future generations. And the peacock's tail was this huge, you know, five foot tall, (laughs) unwieldy, gaudy thing that like, if you imagine a peacock running from predators, like while carrying this five foot (laughs) tail behind it, that does not seem like a feature that would help with the survival of the animal. And so Darwin, he said in a letter to a friend once that the sight of the peacock's tail made him sick, (laughs) because it seemed to undermine his theory that he'd spent years and years building. Um, But as after thinking about it for a long time, he came up with kind of a plausible explanation for how this could actually fit evolution by natural selection, which was that Uh, Evolution isn't just about features that help with your survival. It's also about features that help with your genetic fitness, uh, features that help you reproduce. And so if some features, like a gaudy tail, make you more attractive to members of the opposite sex, that can, in fact, uh, that that can be good for your genes in the long run, even if it hurts with your survival chances in the short run. Um, And so he didn't have the full... Uh, he had only sort of sketched out the beginnings of this theory, but it turned out he was he was really on the right track. And he, he got that insight by obsessing over the, the surprising facts that didn't fit his theory. And so that was something that I was trying to do uh, to some extent, maybe less obsessively or formally than Darwin, <laughs> by <laughs> keeping a surprise journal where I would just keep notes about things that were surprising or contradicted my expectations. Uh, and I, th- I think even just framing them as surprises is is kind of cool and it motivates you to to notice them and kind of collect them in a way that we aren't naturally predisposed to do
0: now a quick word from our sponsor dr burleson here you've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio But maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash And now, back to the program. We've seen this in in our profession, particularly, and there's a lot of orthodontists and dentists that listen to this, and that when direct-to-consumer clear aligners came out, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to the group particularly was, well, what's next? At-home surgery, you know, pull Uh (laughs) pull your own wisdom teeth, which really was a lot about, you know, just doubling down on soldier mindset. You know, we're the specialists. How can a patient do this at a distance? Who do these you know, Wall Street investors think they are.
1: Uh And then
0: there was a surprise. And that I think very quickly, a million consumers said, yeah, we think this is a great idea. And so one of the main direct-to-consumer companies went public. They've got an $8 billion market cap now. And there's millions of patients doing this. So what do you think? So that was a surprise. But did Mm -hmm. we as a profession lean into that uncertainty? You could probably guess, no, we didn't. We Uh as as a profession, the dental board started suing these companies. And, and then we all came up with a, an excuse. And we said, well, clearly these are patients that would never visit our practices, anyways. These are patients ah. that we're not losing. Or, See, this, this is interesting. Yeah. Right? So, so some really smart people from the University of Pennsylvania said, well, let's ask them. Let's go. And, I, and they did a really great social media study to identify these people that were tagging and posting that they've gone through treatment. And the methodology was pretty good, but the, the result was another shocker. Over half of the patients had actually visited a dental office first before choosing mm-hmm. to do this at-home treatment. And we still are grappling with this in our profession, but I love your example of a surprise journal because the surprise to me was consumers do want this. What what are we not giving them was the next question. And so yeah, we started looking at yeah, no, go our – hours of operation and our fees and our pricing model and how we, you know, are flexible with billing their insurance. And these direct-to-consumer companies are all providing that. Whereas you might imagine, dentists and orthodontists are very, um, very much the opposite that, you know, open eight to four o'clock Monday through Thursday. <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of so uh, I just That's thought you might really enjoy cool that example. example.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I love that example. Right. I wish I'd interviewed you before publishing the book. Um <laughs> No, I, I think this is. So I'm not personally that familiar with the world of uh, of dentistry or orthodontry, orthodontistry. Orth, orthodontistry. Um, but I I'm familiar more broadly with just the problem of you know trying to figure out how to satisfy a, a customer's desires and needs. And you know I'm familiar with how frustrating it can be when the thing that you think your customers should want doesn't appear to be the thing they do want, and it's <laughs> it's you know it can be very frustrating. Like, why don't you want this? Like, why don't you see how good this would be for you? Um, but I think if you can flip that into a more curious mindset where you're like, interesting, why? Like, it seems to me that it should be obvious to the consumer that this is like good and and useful and worth their money, but it's not obvious to them. Why is that? Like, let me try to figure this out. I think that that can be a much more useful mindset. Um, and maybe my version of that... Um, of that story about the reaction to the at-home um, orthodontia is an example I alluded to a few minutes ago that I didn't say was from me, but uh, getting low teacher ratings. Um, when I first started teaching uh, at this educational nonprofit that I co-founded, um, I was teaching workshops on improving your judgment. And, and I, I was kind of surprised by my ratings being lower than I thought they would be, and certainly lower than like some of my colleagues who were getting higher ratings and i had stories to explain that like well they're you know whatever they're 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 doing a lot of like rhetorical tricks to be appealing and i'm not willing to do those tricks and so of course my ratings are lower harumph um but when i kind of thought about it from a more curious mindset i realized you know one thing that my colleagues are doing differently from me is they're they're working harder to make the material practically useful to their students Um, and i was I was more focused on like, here's a thing that's interesting to me, like, let me share it with you. <laughs> and I was kind of failing to appreciate, I think, in retrospect, that, you know, people come to these workshops, it's not that they're not intellectually curious people, but like their main goal is they want want something that's, that's useful to them to justify the time and money they're spending. And I was kind of neglecting that. And so <laughs> that did spur me to focus more on like, what what can I say that's actually going to be useful to people, and just focus more on that in developing the curriculum and in in tracking the results of the of the classes, uh, and that was a really useful kind of shift in my thinking about how to how to help you know be a good teacher and um, and provide something that people are actually going to want.
0: I really like that. I think thanks for sharing that. You know, at that personal level, I think we're yeah. all. I mean, that's really what this is about, right? About being intellectually honest. It really it asks the reader, what kind of person do you want to be. And, you know, there's plenty of status, ego, comfort reasons to double down on our identity or to double down on our beliefs. But that isn't, you know, that isn't the way forward, I don't think. And um, I guess we're getting close to the end of our time together. I, I guess a big question that might help our listeners is how do we hold that identity maybe a little more lightly, you know, and how can we maybe flip the script on it?
2: Yeah. um, Holding your identity lightly is a a phrase that I use. Um, It's kind of a play on a a phrase that I like from a famous essayist and tech investor named Paul Graham. He has an essay called Keep Your Identity Small, um, where he says, you know, things like politics and religion, most prominently, but, but lots of things can become part of our identities in that it makes it really hard for us to think clearly about them when uh, when someone disagrees with us or criticizes those beliefs, we take it very personally it 's almost like someone 's you know stomped in your country 's flag it 's that kind of feeling of of indignation um and outrage and And so all else equal it 's best to just let as few things into your identity as possible uh and so I and a lot of people found this essay influential, and we tried to kind of avoid attaching any labels to ourselves at all, like you know. I'm not going to call myself a liberal, or I'm not going to call myself um, a American or a vegan, or all of these labels that can start to become part of our identity. And it's kind of challenging, just like practically speaking, to avoid labeling yourself. Um, like, you know, if you're if you vote for Democrats and you're registered to vote as a Democrat and you agree with the Democrats, like you could avoid calling yourself a Democrat, but it's a little hard to talk <laughs> in conversation about politics um, and avoid labels entirely. Uh, Same thing for being an American and, and, you know, or a liberal or, yeah, it's just, it's just hard to avoid identifying with things. And so what I wanted to focus on in saying, hold your identity lightly is that yes, we're all going to have these things, these beliefs that are to some extent part of our identities, but we we can still maintain some amount of kind of emotional distance from them, some detachment where we're still able to step back and say, yes, you know, the word liberal or the word feminist, that is a pretty accurate description of my beliefs. But you know, it's still just a label. Um, and my beliefs might change. You know, it could turn out that I you know, actually don't agree with feminism or I actually think you know, feminism isn't doing good, net good in the world. You know, and if that happens, then I won't call myself a feminist. So it's just a description. It's just a, just a label. It's not a flag that I'm waving proudly. Um, And so from the outside, this can often seem very similar. Like, you know, a friend of mine who I interview for the book said, you know, he used to really strongly identify as a feminist and he would he would get angry if anyone criticized feminism online. And he would he was constantly being pulled into these very unproductive online arguments where he was, you know, arguing with critics of feminism. And then he decided to to hold that identity more lightly uh, and just kind of take a step back from it. And so he still identifies as a fem- feminist technically. Like if someone asks him, are you a feminist? He, he would say yes, because that is a pretty accurate description of his views. But it now just feels like a label to him. Um, and, you know, he no longer feels that what I call the someone is wrong on the internet compulsion <laughs> to jump in and defend <laughs> the honor of feminism against its critics. Uh, so, yeah, he, he can think in terms of like um, of of critic criticism of feminism as it Ideology and not criticism of him as a feminist.
0: I like that. Yeah. I think, you know, part of the book, and I, I encourage everyone to get to through chapters 14 and 15 and talk about, you solidify a lot of the research on, you know, that exact topic. And then I really enjoyed how you say, you know, listen, you know, because I was one of those for a while, like, listen, so some of this internet chatter and discussion is so toxic. Like I just want to opt out of a lot of it, but you've right. been really wise in curating and selecting who you follow online, the kind of, kind of people you attract online and you give some great examples. I love the um, change of website
2: and yeah. philanthropy
0: give well. So maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that, cause that that's opened my eyes to, okay, you can still engage and you don't, you don't have to have this, you know, horribly defeating. Like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> you know, like it's a battle. Right. Like, you've got to win every time.
2: Yeah, we do tend to get stuck in these um, just really unproductive and kind of self defeating uh, equilibria, where you know people complain all the time about how you know Twitter is just this this terrible sea of people dunking on each other and and manufacturing outrage and. Uh, and strawmanning other positions and, oh, it's just such a mess. And then they spend hours a day on Twitter. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sympathetic to how some of this, this uh, mess can be kind of addictive. I get that. But I think we could try a little harder to, you know, shape our experience online in a better direction if we want to. Um, and so that is something that I've tried to do over the years is, you know, if someone's being really unreasonable and always – um, you know, caricaturing the opposition and being kind of a troll uh, and I feel my blood pressure rising, I don't think that's good for me. Like it's not good for my blood pressure, but it's also not good for my ability to think clearly because it, what that does is it it makes you kind of want to fight back and it makes you, it kind of changes your standard for what's normal or acceptable. And so over time you tend to be like, well, everyone's doing it, so I might as well be unreasonable and trollish too. Uh, So I I think that's not a great influence to create for yourself. And so I just unfollow those people and instead, you know, I'm not trying to create an echo chamber just full of people who agree with me. I'm instead just selecting for people who are relatively speaking more reasonable and thoughtful and nuanced and more scout-like. And, you know, a lot of those people do disagree with me on object level things about politics or ethics or um, lifestyle choices, but They share with me the sense that no, it's important to be, you know, thoughtful and reasonable and acknowledge when the other side has a point. And so those are the people that A, I'm much more likely to actually learn from um, when they disagree with me and and actually change my mind sometimes because they're not being jerks. And B, I think they just make me a better person because, you know, we we tend to learn from the people who surround us and just adopt the the values and the habits of mind and habits of discourse of people who are around us. And so you know, making that a conscious choice and choosing to surround yourself with people who make you a better version of yourself is, I think, uh, really worth doing in the long run.
0: Yeah, I love in the book you share, I think, I hope it's okay to ask that you're actually using this scout mindset. I believe you found your uh, fiance, right?
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So that um, part of what I encourage people to do as in in terms of, you know, curating a better online experience for yourself is actually just reaching out to people like random people you see being scout-like and thoughtful online and, you know, send them a message saying, hey, I you know, really appreciated that you did this um, and, and, you know, I'm, you have got a new follower. And this can kind of help create a new makeshift community for yourself uh, online, even if your real life communities aren't all that scout-like, <laughs> it can still be pretty great to have, uh, cultivate this online community for yourself. And so I was just sharing an example of one time over 10 years ago now uh, that I did that. Uh, where I saw this blogger, who uh, he he had he posted some a blog post about, um, I think it was called "sexy scientists" or something. And so he had it, it was a lighthearted post about some female scientists who he was you know calling sexy, and it sparked um, a huge controversy uh, where a a ton of commenters on his own blog accused him of being misogynist. And then a bunch of commenters on other blogs uh, defended him and were like, no, you guys are overreacting. This post is actually harmless. And it was complimentary. And and so this debate raged for, I think well over a week with over (laughs) 1500 comments on different blogs debating whether or not this post was harmful. And, so the blogger, his name Luke, um, he, he read a bunch of the comments and he, after a few days, he responded saying, you know, thank you for all the feedback. Um, I don't, I still don't agree that my post was harmful, um, but here are some of what I thought were the best criticisms of my post that I read and really thought hard about. Um, so he linked to, I think he called that post uh, reasons why I might be wrong, even though he wasn't yet fully convinced. And so then fast forward four more days. Um, he posts again saying, you know what? I actually, someone made an argument that I found really compelling and it convinced me that in fact, my original post was wrong and potentially harmful. And so I'm recanting it. And, you know, sorry to everyone who's been defending me for the past week, but I actually disagree with you now and I think my post was bad. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I loved this. I love this for two reasons. First, because he didn't immediately bow down to social pressure. Like, he thought about the arguments, he just didn't agree, and he didn't cave in just because people were yelling at him. And so I admired that. And then I also admired that he did change his mind in response to strong argument. Um, And that, you know, when he did find an argument that he found compelling, he was like, okay, yeah, I guess I was wrong. And so I admired both of those things. And I, I messaged him on Facebook saying that I had followed this whole affair. And I really admired how he seemed to really care what was actually true. And you know, not just about defending himself reflexively. Uh, And he wrote back, he's like, oh, I I feel the same about your work. Um, This is so great. And uh, fast forward 10 years later, we're now engaged to be married. (laughs) And um, he's, yeah, his name is Luke. And I I consider him one of the very best scouts I've ever met. uh, And he's definitely one of my role models as well. So not to get too too sappy, but... um, uh, scout mindset can bring you love is
0: the moral. That's <laughs> well, a great example. And I love that. I mean, it's like we should all just remember that like little exercise on reasons I might be wrong, which yeah. um, I, had, I had worked with and heard of GiveWell before. And I know you're a big supporter of it. And I love that one of their main like menu options when you go to their website is here's the mistakes we've made. Here's yes. where we got it wrong. Yeah. It's so huge.
2: Yeah, I love that. It's, it's kind of a common um, – A common practice in the effective altruism movement, um, which is a a movement basically dedicated to figuring out um, ways to do good, ways to help um, people in the world and animals um, using reason and evidence. Um, So, what are the most kind of rigorous and evidence ways we can help people? And yeah. So on on the websites of many of the top effective altruist organizations, they have a section on, here's some mistakes that we've made. And some of them are just kind of logistical mistakes, like we, you know, I don't know, uh, drop the ball on handling this human resources issue or something like that. Others are kind of intellectual ways in which they've changed their mind and think, you know, we we were wrong to emphasize, you know, this cause area before. We now think that it actually isn't Uh, doesn't have enough evidence in support of it, or we misinterpreted the evidence or something, and so we're changing our point of view. And so I really like how uh, transparent that is, and how normalized it is. Because if you think about it, every organization is going to be wrong about lots of things, and it's going to make lots of mistakes. They just don't talk about it. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate, I think there's this kind of group dynamic that happens where the more people in organizations are willing to talk openly about Things they were wrong about or mistakes they made, the easier it is for other people to do, do that as well. So I think there's kind of a nice positive cascade that happens um, that I appreciate.
0: Absolutely, it's it's really powerful. Um, I, I I you tell me if you don't want to answer this question, I, I I'm fair game. I just uh-huh. I've seen, I've read other areas where you've shared about your parents and about your upbringing, and there's a lot of yeah. parents who listen to this program who I think are trying to help instill the values of rational thinking and their children. And I'm, this is just a hypothetical. So since you and I have just solved all the world's problems and, <laughs> done <laughs> in the real world, yeah. now we can move on to the hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious if you had gone, if you could go back in time and tell your, show your parents everything you've accomplished. I mean, not only the amazing people you've had on your podcast, but you've actually moderated a, a, a discussion between Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss. You had Michael Shermer, who I believe is either a founder or co-founder of skeptic society, give a review of your book and the wall street journal. If you could go back and tell your parents that you would accomplish all of that, what, what would they have said?
2: Oh, <laughs> I, you know, they've always been such wonderful and supportive parents. Um, so I I think they would be delighted for me. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I want to give them credit for you know really modeling the behaviors that I often talk about and encourage other people to adopt. Um, uh, as part of Scout mindset, like changing your mind. Um, this is something that they were really good about from the beginning like i remember being i don't know seven years old and arguing with them about some rule that i thought was unfair and they went off and discussed it and came back and were like you know what we decided you're right that is an unfair rule so we're changing it and and i really i appreciated that so much uh as a kid and 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 not just appreciated it but also admired it I thought that's that's a really cool way to be I want to be like that too and so I guess part of the answer to your question then is that I think they would be really tickled <laughs> to discover that these <laughs> things that they were trying hard to do when I was a kid are now things that I'm like broadcasting to the world
0: it's <laughs> awesome I, I kind of knew the answer but I wanted to get it for the group <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, I love that I mean because I'm a, I have three boys and so many times oh, you're nice. tempted to say well I'm the dad, that's why. And that's not <laughs> – your parents have such a better approach. <laughs> so I'll, thank I'll you. I'll tell for, them you said so. For Thank you for sharing that. And I know we're, we're – I mean we've gone over our time. I could talk for days if you let me about oh, sure. topics like this. I love your book. I'm so grateful that you wrote it. I just want to give you a chance to share – for our listeners, how they can find more about you, your podcast, what you're writing, what you're talking about next.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, well, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter. I'm Julia Galef, all one word. Um, and, you know, come come be part of this community of, of scout like people that I'm I've been gradually curating over the years. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. My website is just Julia Um, and there are links on there to the book, the scout mindset and I have a YouTube channel as well, um, and to my podcast, which is called Rationally Speaking. um, And you can also go to the podcast website, rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Yeah, and that's it. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Julia, thanks for being here. It's an honor.
2: Uh, Until next time.
0: You've been listening to another episode of the Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program please share us with a friend or colleague visit the where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list study guides free to the books and authors we interview give us a call at 1-800-891-7520 and we can discuss how a burleson box membership monthly coaching or our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders Be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Umberto Eco, who said, The person who doesn't read lives only one life. The reader lives 5,000. Reading is immortality backwards. Go, make it a great month. I'll see you right here next time on the Burleson Box.
1: The last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement our partners at stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40 percent per month on payment processing costs so don't wait get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.